You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Be advised, you have a shooting or something going on at Bronx Lab. Affirmative case, coming over Zone 10. Question additional units as per uh, my dispatcher and the uh, Zone 10 advising that they have uh, multiple shots being heard fired inside of Bronx, Lebanon. Is everyone going? It was scary because, like, going, uh, being on the 12th floor, being on lockdown, like, the doctors, they basically, I mean, the police officers, they had to be as one by one. And then, like, it was scary seeing, like, the blood on the doctor's hand. And I'm just glad I got out safely. I hope everyone else gets out safely, too. Everybody said, COVID, shut the doors, don't come out your room. We didn't know what was going on. We got scared. They said it was somebody in the house that had um, a, a, a rifle. When I heard that, my heart started beeping and I prayed. We've had a real tragedy here in the Bronx this afternoon. It's something we've seen around the country and now we've experienced here. Uh, tragedy occurred in Bronx Lebanon Hospital. I want to say at the outset, Thank God this was not an act of terrorism. It is an isolated incident. Appears to be a workplace-related matter, but that makes it no less tragic or no less horrible. One doctor is dead, and there are several doctors who are fighting for their lives right now amongst those who are wounded. As you know, the shooter killed himself, but not before having done horrible damage. Well, here we go again. Yes, those letters S M. H come to mind, shaken my head, and I have been doing that since I heard about this Friday afternoon. Absolutely incredible story. And there are many aspects to the story as well. We have a guest who is joining us on our program today. We're going to explore the aftermath of this event, the evolution of what has become known as active shooter situations. And whoever would have thought that that would become part of the popular lexicon in this country and many other areas. Uh, he's going to be with us for our program this morning. I'm very pleased to welcome to our show on WFAN, Jason Jones. Jason has uh, quite an interesting background. He's a retired captain from the Texas Department of Public Safety's Intelligence and Counterterrorism Division. Uh, he managed the daily operations for the Texas Rangers Border Security Operations Center he supervised human intelligence, HUMINT is the acronym, operations in uh, several nations. 
and managed intelligence lead operations for the longest 24-7 border operation in Texas history, Operation Source Texas. And he's got a lot to share with us, some thoughts in this area of homeland security as well, and the other things we're going to talk about in his background, too. First of all, Jason, good morning. Welcome to our program. Well, good morning, and thank you for having me. I want to get your reaction, first of all, to what you have learned about this situation from the Bronx on Friday with this active shooter at the hospital there. Yeah, sure. Again, another tragic event, uh, not only in that great city, but uh, to our great nation and an evolving threat that we continue to see. You know, we go from these active shooters to terrorist events and then these types of clearly what it's now, I guess, being decided as workplace violence. And, you know, it's just senseless. So my thoughts and prayers are with the victims and with the families this morning. You know, it's really senseless violence that just doesn't need to be occurring. But it also is an example of the challenges that we face today in trying to respond and get to these locations quickly enough when these events happen, especially when we have no prior information of any kind, you know, that these incidents are about to occur. You know, you used a very interesting term a moment ago when you used the term evolving threat. What do you mean by that? Well, look at the style of attacks we're now happen- happening in uh, uh, London overseas. You know, you're using the very thing that anyone that can can find something that can harm people. You know, they're, they're leveraging kitchen knives and vehicles. So you don't see any trade craft there. You see what I'm getting at? Yes. So, you know, now we've we've got to be prepared for, you know, every event that people come together now to make sure just that we can't even allow vehicles to be able to access our citizens, you know, not just in New York and not just overseas, but around the country and around the world. It just it's, it goes to show how this evolving threat is changing and trying to keep up with it as fast paced as our world is, is extremely difficult. Is it possible? It is possible. You know, it is. And I will tell you, as someone that has worked this extensively and tried to help build uh, programs and initiatives behind it, the problem is that it's 24-7. You've got to work it, and you as a government organization, as an agency, have to be willing to change and look at things differently. Let me give you some examples. Um, You hear a lot about intelligence sharing today. Between government agencies, it's not just about intelligence sharing. That was September 12, 2001. Today in 2017, what is happening is true collaboration between agencies. And what I mean is, is any event that happens around the world, we need to know as law enforcement and as fusion centers around our country, within that first golden hour, exactly what happened, who the individuals are responsible and determine, do they have any links back to your home city, your home county, your home state, and then to our nation? And if they do, then to share that information real time as quickly as possible. Because once you have an event, and in your city right now, you've got to worry about this. You're in what we call the 120-hour window gap. And in 120 hours, you've got to worry about, do we have another copycat that's been thinking about you know, committing one of these acts of violence and is getting ready to do so? And so usually you see, and if you notice, as the summer months came on, once we had an event, between the next 120 hours, we had another copycat incident or another group of terrorists ready to strike, and they did. So right now, 
you know, that's the fears of the copycat next. Well, when you think back to, and I know you've done some reading, like studying up on what took place uh, Friday in here in New York and the Bronx, the response from um, first responders um, from the city police department and the city fire department was nothing short of amazing. Um, that sort of thing, you know, it took, I think, a lot of people by surprise, first of all, that this was taking place. But they also seem to be surprised by the pace and the intensity of the response of first responders. But realistically, aren't they trained to be ready to handle situations like this? Sure, absolutely. But you still have the challenge from the time you get the call to be able to get there quickly. And this is an important point. And, you know, you're in the city where you've got first responders just blocks away who can get there very quickly. But there's been some very interesting studies of these events and something for the folks to think about that are listening this morning is when you have seconds and the police are minutes away, what is your plan? Is it run, hide, fight, or do you even have a plan? Because you've got to make take action, and that action is going to depend upon the environment that you're dealing with. But what is your plan? And you as an individual and as an organization – you know, just like we have fire drills, today we're going to have to start looking at having drills for active shooter in workplace, and some organizations do, but it's something that we really need to think about, and really, not just in the workplace. What about at home, you know, and in other environments when we're with our families and we're out eating? Have you talked to your children about what is, what is their plan and what are they going to do? And unfortunately, it's just the world that we live in, but... The FBI has done a lot of studying on these active shooter events because we've had just so many of these over the years. And in 60% of the cases, this is a really interesting number, 60%, the incident is over before the first responder even arrives. Mm -hmm. So it goes back to what I said earlier, right, that the citizen has to have a plan. The organization uh, and the business or in the workplace needs to have a plan to take action. And I will tell you, as the critical incident commander in the State Intelligence Center during the second Fort Hood incident, um, one of the things that we learned is that limiting mobility, let me say this again, limiting mobility to these shooters is extremely important. And I'll, I'll tell you a quick story. Um, a very, uh, just an amazing American, Sergeant First Class Danny Ferguson, a lot of people haven't heard of him, who really brought this to our attention in Texas. Hold that, hold that, th hold that thought, because I want to want to hear the full sure. story. But we've got to pause for a sports update and some messages too. I want to be able to go through the story in detail. We're talking with uh, Jason Jones on our program on the fan. He's going to be with us for our program this morning. A little bit later in the program, we'll try to work in some thoughts from some of the folks listening to us as well. We got a lot to get to this Sunday morning. It's Sunday morning on The Fan. Good morning, everybody. This is Bob Salter. We're in discussion with Jason Jones on our program. He is bringing his expertise in the area of security, and especially we'll get into discussion about some things in the area of homeland security that he has been involved in over the years. 
We're talking with him about a number of topics. We started off talking about this whole situation, the aftermath of the Bronx Lebanon hospital shootings on uh, Friday. And you were about to explain a situation and uh, talk about a specific person. I interrupted you when we had to pause. Would you pick up on that, please, Jason? Yeah, sure, absolutely. You know, just want to share with the folks some options uh, that you can do that are very simple that we unfortunately had to learn the hard way that we've had to, you know, that we continue to learn the hard way, unfortunately. But a very heartfelt story. You know, when the second Fort Hood incident occurred in Texas with a gunman by the name of Ivan Lopez, uh, he was mobile across that base uh, shooting at, at fellow soldiers. And at one point, he ended, entered a, a building area that, that was occupied by over 30 soldiers. And one soldier by the name of uh, uh, Sergeant First Class, uh, Danny Ferguson, just an amazing young man, uh, jumped up, ran over, and held the door as that gunman approached, shooting through the door. Uh, shooting Sergeant Ferguson several times. He slowly fell to his death and never turned away trying to save his fellow soldiers. And the reason I tell you that so that story is because in the after-action reviews, we found that just a $10 lock may very well have saved his life. And mm -hmm. so if there are options that the folks after, you know, going through this horrific event there um, in New York, are thinking, what can they do? And one of the things that I want to tell you that's just very simple is limit mobility, because we see that a lot of these gunmen, they may fantasize about committing these horrific acts for many years. By the time they do it, they, they create what we call the overt act in the cycle of violence, where they finally take that first initiative to go purchase a weapon, if it is, or a knife, and they begin the planning stages, which really increases the time frame to the point of action, okay? So when that happens, um, it's extremely important that we're sharing information with the public. There's a public sharing information with law enforcement. You have see something, say something campaigns. And in New York, you have something called see something, send something. Mm -hmm. So it's truly a collaborative approach between the citizens and law enforcement at all levels across this country and now across the world to try to do everything we can do to work together to stop these events. And so when people see these folks starting to radicalize and taking those first overt acts and initiatives, that's when it's imperative that the folks listening, if you have someone that you love that you see is going in the wrong direction or someone that's a neighbor that you know, make the call. Send something, see something, say something. It, it does work. To go back to a point you raised almost 10 minutes ago, the idea of having, quote, a plan is something that I think a lot of people probably thought of in the aftermath of September 11th, 2001, when we heard a lot of talk about that. However, a lot of years passed since 9-11. And um, you know, many people probably have become complacent. How vigilant should we be? Well, I mean, just, you know, look at the news every night somewhere in the world. It seems like there's just some kind of disaster, which is unfortunate. But we have to be realistic, too. You know, um, we live in a very safe society for the most part. These these incidents, are, you know, are starting to become more prevalent. They're happening. But, you know, I, I just think that we need to be more observant. We need to have a plan. And that's just we need to be realistic to the world that we live in. And that having a plan means that you can take action. Um, when things go bad and, you know, having a plan and something to do, make sure that you feel that you have some security for your family.
And when you say having a plan, how elaborate does that plan have to be? Because if some people are listening who are thinking, well, wait a minute, what exactly do I have to do? What should I be even thinking about doing? Yeah, sure. Do you have rally points where if communications go down with your children, where you're going to meet? You know, simple things like that. Um, you know, because as you know, when events happen, remember back to 9-11 where communications went down. Um, if you're in the workplace, for example, and uh, you believe that you have some type of event, how, what's your exit strategy? If you have members of your workforce who, you know, have disabilities, what's your plan to get your workforce out of the building and limit mobility of these shooters? Sometimes just some simple thoughts. Um, you know, do you have any type of a weapon in the workplace that you could utilize if you had to? Do you have a place that you could hide? Um, so that they can't find you. Because a lot of these, these shooters, they plan for an event, but they don't plan, uh, you know, they plan to commit a horrific act, but they really don't think through the thoughts of sometimes how they're going to get through a door. And that's why I say something as simple as a lock. You know, they'll go up, jiggle that door, and then move on to the next simple area to get through. So uh, simple obstacles can have huge effects during these types of events. Okay, we've heard an awful lot of talk about that idea of, uh, the, the term has been used of sheltering in place. Um, and we heard this uh, from some people who were interviewed in the aftermath of these shootings on Friday at Bronx Lebanon Hospital. You know, when people basically lock themselves in um, rooms in various parts of, of the hospital because they didn't know exactly what was going on. If you go back and listen to the calls from the police department, calls that were coming into the police department, there were reports of a shooter, an active shooter, on, I think, three different floors in the hospital. And, you know, you think of the first responders going into the building, they have to search all the floors, and they don't know whether the call is right that the person's on the ninth floor, the 12th floor, or the 17th floor. Sure, um, sure. Until, until Basically until they get there and, you know, encounter that person. So I guess my thought is, how do we best prepare for that idea of sheltering in place? I mean, a lot of people tend to, I guess, maybe not take this as seriously as I think they should. Do we need to go back to something that a lot of us were exposed to in school growing up where literally we did drills? I mean, should you do that? Should you practice that sort of thing? Well, absolutely. I think practicing anything and trying to be prepared um, is the key. But I am also very hesitant to tell you to just prepare to shelter in place. And the reason is because every environment is different mm -hmm. across this country, and every incident is different. And by the time you may learn that you have a shooter, they may be among you because you may be right where this incident is happening. And if your only plan is to shelter in place, then what's your next form of action that you plan to do? And that's why I say I don't know if, if you're going to be required to run, to hide, or fight, but having a, a plan of, that has multiple prongs based on the event that's occurring to you at that time is extremely important. 
look, I, I understand the shelter in place, and I, I strongly support it if it is the right thing to do for the incident that's affecting you there. I mean, for an example of what I'm talking about is, is the location that you may be sheltering in place, is it a, a, the right place to be sheltering in place for? Is it, uh, will it stop the uh, the individual from gaining access to, you know, does the door have the proper locks? Can they shoot through the walls? Can they shoot through the door? So, you know, these are things that you have to think about when it, when you're in your planning uh, phase of, of for these type of events. But not having a plan of what to do, of to how to take action prior to law enforcement getting there. I mean, you have, I will tell you, you have second to none one of the best law enforcement agencies, not just in the United States and the world. New York City Police Department is some of the most prepared, uh, some of the most highly trained. I have worked with those individuals for many years, and I can't stress to the public listening um, just the sheer level of commitment and dedicated folks that you have there. But even with them being the best, if you look at the statistics on some of these active shooters, when and I go back to what I said earlier, when you have seconds, and officers are still minutes away trying to get to you, you've got to take action. To the layperson, in most cases, they don't have a clue as to the kind of training, the kind of drills that first responders are involved in. Um, they just want help when they need it from first first response right. okay sure All right. sure and in a situation like uh fridays people wanted to um get to safety and one of the interesting things in studying some of the response from um eyewitnesses those who were in the hospital at the time was how they were able to get into a safe space and they waited until literally they got that knock on the door from a police officer who would say to them, you know, we have to escort you to the stairway and get you out of the building. And they moved an amazing number of people out of that building with this active shooter situation ongoing. I mean, that sort of thing, I think, is something that we just kind of have to, as best we can, be better prepared for in the future, you know, because I think also back to, and I hate to bring up 9-11, but it, it's natural in discussions like this. And you think of all of those people who were trying to get out of those buildings, especially at Ground Zero, which uh, Jason is located basically about a, a mile away from where we're sitting right now in lower mm -hmm. Manhattan. And I was there this morning. Um, because I w wanted to do some meditation in preparation who are coming in here today and doing this show. And um, you know, it's very sobering thinking of what took place then and thinking of the fact that there had been preparations in terms of people preparing, knowing how to exit the building, except... They ran into a horrific situation, obviously, at that time. But a lot of people probably don't even know how to get out of a place where they work. And I, I've brought this issue up literally here at the building where we are. And it's something I've, sure. I, I practice this 
once a month. And people think that I'm crazy for even saying this or doing it, but I do. Because my thought is, if it comes down to it, and I have to get out of this building in a hurry, I intend to be on the street, and we're on the 10th floor of the building, in less than three minutes' time. And I've done that. There are basically six different ways of leaving this building, and I know how to get out all six of those ways. And I wonder when people are in these workplaces, wherever it is, how well you know the way to get out if you had to and to get out safely and quickly, especially if it's not well lit, if it's chaotic. The sort of thing where you have to just react and go and potentially sure. move other people at the same time. You know, it's, it's the sort of thing where it's not necessarily that you can stop and start and strategize. It's that you got to jump into gear and move and get people out. Because my thought always is, yeah, I'm going to get out, but I'm also going to try to take everybody from this floor with me and get out sure. too because at least I know where the heck we're going. And I know how long it can take us to get down to the ground level if we needed to. Anyway, enough. Let me get off my soapbox. We had other areas to go to in our discussion. We're talking with Jason Jones on our program, and we've really just begun this discussion. We'll work in some of your thoughts as well this Sunday morning. It's Sunday morning on The Fan, and good morning, everybody. This is Bob Salter. We're speaking with the counterterrorism expert. Jason Jones is talking with us on our program on The Fan. And, you know, use that term terrorism as I am now. Terrorism 2017. Jason, how different is it from where we were, let's say, three or four years ago? Well, it's it's obviously you know it's it's evolving as we discussed earlier, and you know which which group do you talk about now? You know, I mean, there are so many of them out there, mm-hmm. um, and not just those from the terrorism front. You have other dark networks, as we now call them, uh, like we're seeing down in Texas that we're dealing with, and really across the world, um, the Mexican cartels. You know, they've killed well over a hundred thousand people. Uh, numbers are actually in the last 10 years closer to 150,000 people. You know, they leverage military-grade weapons. So, you know, the the term that we've talked about, about these evolving threats, um, it just continues to change. And what's important, though, to this is that that's the natural cycle. Um, you know, when, we, when you're talking about ungoverned space around the world where these uh, dark networks operate, this is what happens. And so as we go in and we... Uh, begin to degrade one organization, another one pops up somewhere else. And that's that's just where we are in the world today, and, and we've got to face it. But we must take action against them and not let these these organizations get to the, to the size that we've seen them get, ISIS being a prime example. Well, you know, a lot of people probably would agree with you, but at this point, isn't that almost like, going after, I guess, the horse that's already out of the barn? Well, I, 
I see your point. I do. But, you know, I've watched, and I'll just give you an example. I've watched these cartels in Mexico um, become so much more than what we traditionally believe of them as just drug trafficking organizations, leveraging military-grade weapons from surface-to-air missiles now that we seized last year to light anti-tank weapons, RPGs, I mean, you name it. Um, going through training uh, academies that, you know, can expand from 13 to 18 weeks, and they're not even driven by an ideology. They're driven by money. Wait a minute. They have they have actual academies that run 13 to 18 weeks, training academies? That's absolutely correct. Uh, when we talk about Sinaloa Cartel, Beltran Leyva Organization, uh, Knights Templario, uh, the Los Zetas, and the Gulf Cartel, absolutely and this, this goes back to what, I, what you just asked that I thought was very important that has to be discussed with the American people is that these are evolving threats. They're changing. And it's not just terrorist organizations uh, that we traditionally think of. You know, when this, when this all started after 9-11, we were looking at al-Qaeda, right? And then we evolved into other places in the world. Now then we evolved to ISIS. And now we're seeing, you know, organizations that were traditionally only moving drugs and people now becoming a part of this terrorism culture. Uh, you know, when you start killing that, those, that number of people and in the brutal, brutal methods that they're leveraging and utilizing, you know, you've got to start thinking, are they a dark network and should they be considered the same? And I will say as someone who has been building initiatives and programs, I will absolutely tell you that we must look at them differently and we must go after them. So along the southern border, and, you know, you're speaking with us from the state of uh, Texas where you live, um, what is, I guess, what's the level of intensity with which the cartels come under scrutiny? Not near what I believe, and I'll, I'll be very frank and open with you. I've, I've watched this evolving problem uh, Almost every single day since 2004, um, as an undercover narcotics agent buying dope from the Gulf Cartel and the Las Zetas in Brownsville, Texas, as a lieutenant in Laredo, um, working them as they began to evolve and, and building these types of tactics and capabilities. I mean, we're talking about organizations now that leverage armored vehicles. Um, they have been fighting. And, you know, I, I don't know what your viewers, how much uh, publicity this gets this far north, but the Mexican military has been going after the cartels in Mexico for over 10 years trying to defeat them, and they've not been able to. And this is where the challenge comes when we talk about border security, for example, is that, you know, these are multibillion-dollar-a-year dark networks. They evolve and they adjust. Sinaloa Cartel, for example, is in 54 nations around the world. Cartel Jalisco New Generation, which actually is a very young cartel, is in 42 nations around the world. So when you talk about building a wall or you talk about border security, you've got to think, well, what is the long game here? Because they're just going to make adjustments. And the longer we don't take action and we continue to allow these networks to evolve, and become this at certain levels of violence, it becomes what, what we talk about in Texas a lot, which is that this is no longer a Department of Justice mission. Um, this is something that the intelligence community and the Department of Defense really have to take a look at and, and get much more involved in. Well, if the Mexican military has had this effort ongoing for over a decade, 
would it benefit that entity's efforts to have assistance, whether it's from another nation's uh, forces, military forces, um, police security forces, et cetera? Would that help? Could that be effective? Absolutely. And I can tell you, as someone who has sat across talking with Mexican generals in Texas, um, you know, we have collaborated and shared intelligence with them, along with uh, many of their intelligence services. Um, but we've, we've got to get involved in this much more than we are. And I would ask your viewers, because I don't know how much uh, view they have to the problem with the cartels, but you talked, you had, your question was about the evolving threat. And I'm trying to just give examples of how these networks evolve. And it's not just terrorism in today's 2017. It's other types of dark networks that are now evolving to this level. And the Mexican cartels are a prime example of that. So it's not just the heroin and the methamphetamine that they're pushing into the country. Um, it is these other types of just horrific acts of violence that they're perpetrating down in Mexico. And so I would ask your viewers tonight, if they are interested, look into this, uh, type in some of these cartels in the open source, look at their videos that they're posting on YouTube. It's the same exact kind of or just horrific events we would see from Al-Qaeda and ISIS overseas. Not a lot of difference there. And do they use the same recruiting tactics that ISIS and al-Qaeda used? They do in a lot of ways. I will tell you, um, I have debriefed numerous uh, cartel members during my career, and it is, it is really interesting. Um, you know, they, you're talking about an underdeveloped nation, unfortunately. It's a, it's a great country, but it's, it's just the, the, way of, the way it is down there. And when you talk to these young people who have become cartel members. It's very interesting to talk to them because when you become a sicario, which is an assassin for these organizations, your normal lifespan is three to five years. And I've sat across from them and asked them, look, you know, you seem very bright. Knowing that you only have the next three to five years most likely to live, you know, what are you doing? What are you thinking? And one individual specifically I asked that to, he looks back at me and he says, better to live for the next three to five years like a king than another day in the dirt with nothing. Hmm. Let me say that again, than another day in the dirt with nothing. And that really goes to the problem we have with the gangs in the United States, with you know the ideology overseas, and with the problems that we're dealing with the cartels. You know, they these young people down in Mexico, you know, they they can remember they grow up wanting to be in the cartel, especially those that are in the under especially the underdeveloped areas. You know, that, that same young man immediately began telling me the story about how he could remember as a young child, two Suburbans pulling up, gunmen getting out of the vehicle with uh, one of them with a girl under each arm, walked over and handed him a $100, U.S. $100 bill and said, hey, kid, go take care of your family. And growing up, that's what he wanted to do. So, you know, when you talk about recruiting efforts, this is how they recruit. Mm. The impact of social media, how does that factor into the cartel's efforts? Uh, it's just the same as we see with, you know, terrorist organizations. You know, they, they have an entire logistics team and propaganda team, which is those same folks that are posting these horrific videos on YouTube that we now see of them beheading people in Mexico. And they use that propaganda. They also have uh, bands which you know, play these ballads of these 
great warriors or these commandos and the, the things that they do. And so these things inspire these young people to become a part of these organizations, plus the lure of money and having something and being a part of something, um, which is what drives that. Interesting discussion that we are having with our counterterrorism expert, Jason Jones. He's joined us on our program. He's a very interesting, comprehensive website, by the way, at Jason Jones. That's J-A-E-S-O-N-J-O-N-E-S, Jason Jones, all this one word, dot com. He's with us for our entire program this morning. A lot to get to in this discussion. When we talk about the biggest players among the cartels in Mexico— Who's on top and why? Two, two mega cartels right now. Cartel Jalisco New Generation and Sinaloa Cartel, which some of your listeners may know from uh, one of the individuals that's actually being detained there in New York City, Chapo Guzman, who was one of four different cells that made up Sinaloa Cartel. I'll go into both of those a little bit. Sinaloa Cartel, uh, one of the oldest cartels operating in Mexico, and what they are very well known for is their level of corruption at very high levels within the Mexican government. Um, this is the reason that they are so good at what they do. They, they know how to corrupt uh, police officials, government officials, mayors, um, and even governors, and higher, even at higher levels within that government. So if you talk about their strengths, they know how to collaborate, and it's one of the things that they do very well with other criminal organizations from MS-13, street gangs throughout the United States, um, and other criminal organizations within Mexico, and they leverage them. So they're very good at the game of collaboration and understanding that it's the relationships, because these are old crooks that are still running that organization. Currently, El Mayo is the capo. Uh, with Chapo Guzman uh, being detained in the United States. But right now it's going through some real challenges. It is in the middle of a war with another mega cartel, which is Cartel Jalisco New Generation, which is driving the violence to unprecedented levels in Mexico. And when we see cartels battle in Mexico, and I, I know your viewers probably remember the large numbers of losses that were sustained in Juarez back in 2010 through 2012. Once Sinaloa cartel won that area, that's when that, uh, those battles stopped and you know, some normalcy to life came back. Now in Mexico, the challenge is that these two mega cartels are battling. And it's causing violence to spread, not just you know, in Sinaloa and in, Cart- in Jalisco, where Cartel Jalisco new generation operate, but throughout the country of Mexico. So just to give you some numbers, which are just horrific, 2017 will be the worst year on record for murders in Mexico since the country began keeping statistics. From January to May, they had 11,155 confirmed murders from the government of Mexico just for five months. So the worst year, just to kind of put things in perspective for your viewers, was in 2012 with over 24,000 murders. So based on the numbers we're looking at, we're looking somewhere around 30,000 of things can stay consistent by the end of the year. It's absolutely incredible. Um, And again, you know, as as I hear these figures, the first thing I think of is um, why isn't there more outrage about this? 
I have to tell you, I don't know. I, I have wondered this uh, as someone who has had to be on that border. You know, we have been sharing the word with law enforcement around the country for many years. I will tell you, been to New York several times to make sure that the NYPD is aware of the, the challenges of what's coming and, most importantly, what to look for. And they are miles ahead of other agencies in trying to prepare for this problem. But it is an issue, and it's not just a U.S. problem. It's a global problem. You know, I, I listed how many of these countries that these criminal organizations are in, to include, you know, Africa as well. So they're evolving. The threat's evolving and changing. And, and the other thing to expect this year, because they are battling, is expect more heroin and more methamphetamine to come to the United States while cocaine is being shipped to Europe, Russia, um, Canada, and Australia. And let me just give the viewers an example of how things are, are changing. You know, we always hear that the United States is driving the drug market uh, in Mexico. And I will tell you, in 2017, that's not the case anymore. While, yes, we, have, we are a big part of that problem, it's a global problem now. The levels of cocaine going overseas, these cartels have found new markets. They can make $200,000 a kilo in Australia of cocaine. Really? Absolutely. In Russia, $100,000. In 2013, I, could, I will tell you, I cannot figure out where all our cocaine went. I mean, it just it, it virtually almost disappeared while the heroin and the meth just our numbers went up hundreds and hundreds of percent. And I remember calling a good friend of mine with U.S. Customs and Border Protection. said, look, man, I, I don't know what's happening here. We're trying to figure out where our cocaine is going. And he said, he said, yeah, we were doing the same just a month ago, and you know, that's when we began to figure out that they had hit the other markets extremely hard. They were already beginning it, but this is where the evolution of heroin into the United States and meth into the United States really took hold, along with cocaine going overseas. And, and you asked me about uh, the organizations and how they're structured and why they're successful. Cartel Jalisco New Generation uh, their their ideology and how they kind of operated was a lot different. They went to Europe first, and as a result, their marketplace there uh, allowed them to gain a lot of funds very rapidly, very quickly. So while they're still a very young organization and very violent, the reason they're really on the Richter scale and known now is because they shot down a Mexican military helicopter with RPGs, kind of like we had, you know, the old Somalia incident right. that we had Black Hawk down in the United States. Jason, yeah, well, that was Mexico's incident that they had. Jason Jones is talking with us on our program. We're going to talk more after our top of the hour update on the fan this Sunday morning. It is a very, very big weekend here at WFAN. Happy birthday to the fan. 30 years, of course, officially yes, marked yesterday of WFAN in existence as the country's first all-sports radio station. And imagine this. Imagine this, Dave. There were people who thought it would never happen. They thought it would never last. 30 years later, they're wrong. <laughs> 30 years later, they're wrong. May there be another 30 in the works. Eh, you never know. And I will say, I was wrong too. Because 
I also was one of those people who was very skeptical at the time, thinking 24 hours a day of sports? Who would want to talk sports 24 hours a day? Boy, did I learn and learn and learn. After our 8 o'clock update, speaking of things you'll learn, Rick Wolf will be along with the Sports Edge program. And then after 9, well, it's a bit of a change in the learning curve. Ed Randall will be by. He'll be talking baseball here on The Fan. We are in discussion with Jason Jones on our program. Jason is a counterterrorism expert. He has quite an interesting background. He's shared a lot with us in the first hour of our program. And he's with us for our entire show this morning. I want to be able to offer the opportunity for folks listening to us to join us in our discussion, too, on some of the points that we have raised in the discussion and some areas where we're about to go. Our toll-free line here at WFAN is 877-337-6666. You want to make a comment or ask a question on point with what uh, Jason is sharing with us in our discussion, whether it's a point about this uh, active shooter situation that took place at Bronx Lebanon Hospital on uh, Friday. Um, you want to raise a point about the idea of having a plan in the event of uh, something like that or concerns that come up about this topic of terrorism. Usually around the holidays, uh, this becomes an area of focus and um, one needs only look around in uh, public gathering areas at an increased presence of law enforcement and um, security personnel, people are on a more alert status, shall we say, especially around the holidays, too. 877-337-6666, you want to join us in our discussion. Now, to an area you sort of touched upon, but I want to allow some time to be able to explore this. You're speaking with us from the state of Texas, southern part of the United States. One of the things that we heard an awful lot about during the last presidential campaign from our current president, Donald Trump, is the idea of building a wall between this country and Mexico. The idea of a border wall, you've talked about the problems from the cartels in Mexico and their operations how those operations have spread globally. What impact, let me be skeptical and say, if any, would a border wall really have on them? Sure. And it goes back to the environment, kind of like we discussed earlier. You know, if you've been on the border, then you have, <laughs> you've only been on the border to one spot because <laughs> – uh, I got to tell you, it's a, it's a very difficult environment. To give you some examples, if you're in South Texas, um, down in McAllen to Brownsville, you're dealing with a river that's very deep, it's very wide. Um, you can have 20 people standing in front of you and you won't see them uh, if you're near the water because the foliage is just unbelievable. I will tell you that everything bites everything stings. Um, <laughs> even the trees have thorns on them. Um, there, it is just a hospitable environment. Uh, now go out to West Texas, very different. You know, the closest town can be, uh, well over a hundred miles from the border. Uh, you have natural environments like big Ben where, you know, you've got a natural barrier. That's a wall. 
Um, you know, and then that doesn't include New Mexico, Arizona, and so on. So you've been on the border. You've only been to one part of it, and, and I can tell you it's extremely difficult. In El Paso, for example, you know, there are places where you can cross, and you won't even get your shorts wet. And it's not wide at all. Actually, when I was a, a highway patrolman out there, uh, they used to put, the cartel used to put down big uh, metal grates, and they would literally drive a vehicle across. Uh, we called them suicide loads back in the 90s. And you could look through the window and you could see the bundles of narcotics as they would cross that way. So how you, to, and to go to answer your question, how you operate and whether you need a wall or you don't is really truly based on the environment. Sometimes I'll tell you, I'll listen to these experts that never even went to the border. And they'll tell you what, whether you need a wall or whether you don't. And I just want to throw my book at the television. I get so frustrated. But our, our country through, uh, you know, past different administrations, both on one side or the other, they still built some type of barrier. Uh, right now across our country in different areas, we have a little over 600 miles of either a barrier or a wall. And I'll give you an example. In El Paso, Texas in the 90s, they built a double-layered fence, and they called it Operation Hold the Line, and they put a Border Patrol agent in line of sight throughout the city limits who had to be able to look over his left shoulder and his right shoulder and see another border patrol agent. And when they did that, it absolutely stopped the problem of people and narcotics coming through in that, in that area. But it moved them out to where we were operating. And that's, you know, where I was sharing with you about seeing some of those types of loads crossing a minute ago. So, and why did they do that? They built that wall specifically because when you're close to cities or urban environments, the cartel and others can cross into the United States. And back then, they literally used to, you talk about burglarizing your house, I'm talking about literally stealing the furniture, your refrigerator and things and taking all of that back. Well, that wall stopped that. So the truth is in some areas, Walls work very well, and we leverage on the border right now with U.S. Customs and Border Protection, which I want to tell your listeners, I don't know um, how, how often you deal with United States Border Patrol, the Office of Field of Operations, your port officers um, who, you know, when you go in, in and out of customs, or the Air and Marine Operations Group with U.S. Customs and Border Protection. All three of those make up U.S. Customs and Border Protection, and they are I got to tell you, just some amazing people. I have had the opportunity to work alongside of them and in some cases to lead them. And the American people would just be amazed at the everyday humanitarian effort they're doing to save lives on that border for people crossing. Just amazing people. But they leverage what is known as a layered approach. And I, I don't know if your listeners are familiar with this. So when you cross at the, at the water, if you're trying to come into the United States, where the water is deep enough, we have boats on the water. Once you get to land, we have sensors in the ground and we have sensors in trees that immediately are notifying law enforcement to your location so that they can start responding. The problem is that our border is so porous and so, I mean, just such a difficult environment, it can take time to respond to some of these areas as remote as they are. So. That's why we leverage these different layered approaches. So now you've got law enforcement responding as these people are crossing. And in very rural areas, it's not an issue. They can get there quickly enough. They can do what we call read sign, which is uh, footprints in the sand. And these agents are, I mean, absolutely amazing. They can tell you how many people there are 
which ones are most likely women, which ones are most likely children, all from their footprints, and which ones are most likely carrying a load of dope on their back based on the, the way the, of the weight into the sand. I mean, just truly amazing. But the goal is to get there quickly enough before they can reach a stash house. So now you go to very urban environments where stash houses across from uh, Mexico can literally be less than 100 yards. That's where a wall becomes extremely important and helpful because it will detain people long enough for aircraft to respond or for agents on the ground in whatever form or fashion to be able to get there. So like in South Texas, where we had spent, and, I, and these numbers may sound amazing, but they are absolutely uh, right. Texas spent $880 million to secure two counties in South Texas, where we had all of those people crossing from June of 2014, where we had the massive migration. Your listeners may remember when we have all those unaccompanied children and families crossing into the United States. And what happens in those areas is the cartel knows exactly where we are because they have what are known as hapcones, which are known as falcons or the lookout. These folks range in age from 10 years old up. They operate 10 miles into the United States on two-way handheld encrypted radios communicating back to leadership in Mexico. And they coordinate the movement of all goods illicit between our ports of entry in and out of the country completely illegally. And they own and control that space based on these radio communications. And they are literally at every bend and every river and they operate 24 seven, they never slow down. So in urban environments, what the wall does is it holds them long enough for us to respond before they can reach the stash house, whether it be moving people, drugs, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Okay, I see that. Um, I want to talk about the, you know, the, the response, I guess, of the cartels to the idea of a wall as well as we continue in our discussion. We're talking with Jason Jones. Uh, Jason is a counterterrorism expert. He's shared an awful lot with us. He's got more to share. We'll work in some of your thoughts. You want to join us in our discussion. 877-337-6666 is our number. Radio.com. After our 9 o'clock update, it is Ed Randall, who's along talking baseball on the fan. And after our 8 o'clock update, Rick Wolf is by with the Sports Edge program. I'm Bob Salter. We're in discussion with Jason Jones on our program. Jason has shared an awful lot with us since we started our program at 6 this Sunday morning. And he is a counterterrorism expert, has shared information also about some of the goings-on and activities with the Mexican cartels. A lot of uh, information probably a lot of us did not know, didn't have a clue about, especially in this part of the country, as to exactly what is uh, going on with these uh, cartels, too. And you've shared some thoughts also on this concept of uh, a border wall. I mentioned the fact we'll try to, if uh, folks want to join us in our discussion, uh, work in some of their thoughts. 877-337-6666, our number here at The Fan. The response of the cartels to this idea, the concept of a border wall, are they already planning ways to go under it, over it, around it? 
Well, they absolutely are. And I'm, I have to tell you, I'm so glad you asked that part of the question because while I will always tell you that the border wall works, it works for where the cartels are today. It's the two-year, five-year, and 10-year window down the line that I'm concerned about. And to your listeners, remember, you were talking about global violent networks that are making billions of dollars in a year. They are not going to quit. What they're going to do is make harsh adjustments. And we're already starting to see that. I can tell you that they are testing and evaluating drones uh, right now at an unprecedented level to be able to fly over that border. The Sinaloa Cartel and Beltran Label Organization, who are known for digging tunnels in California and Arizona, because even though you hear a lot about tunnels, you can't build tunnels in Texas at this point anyway because the soil collapses. It does not hold uh, long enough to be able uh, to or provide the ability to dig a tunnel. So really your tunnels are only occurring on the far western end of New Mexico, um, all throughout Arizona and then throughout California. So you have two major cartels who are able to leverage building tunnels. And they are very good at it, those tunnel rats, as their, their units are called. And I can tell you right now, they are not only planning to build deeper and more tunnels, they are already starting that process and testing and evaluating. So um, then they're going to go around it. Right now, they leverage pongas, which are shark boats that go out about 50 miles into refueling stations into the Gulf of Mexico, bringing narcotics as far north as Galveston, Texas. Um, so they will evolve there as well. And that's the thing to remember, that they are not going to quit. We must take action against them if we expect to truly have some long-term solutions right now for where we are. The border wall will work in areas where we need it. That you know, the men and women of the United States Customs and Border Protection know exactly where that needs to be, and uh, they're uh, they're already identifying areas where we need to fill some gaps. But it is the long-term approach that I'm concerned about, and the strategy that we take on to defeat these organizations. And look, I mean, we've got a real humanitarian effort, an issue going on down in Mexico with people trying to get to the United States who are absolutely being exploited and murdered in that country. And, you know, these are things that we need to be having really open and honest discussions about. When we talk about the idea of taking action against the cartels, are we talking about, there's a term that was used the other day here in New York with the active shooter situation, neutralizing. Is that what we're talking about? Well, one part of it, yes, I, I will say one part of it, you know, to, def to definitely some key node players um, who you can't get to. And let me, let me give your viewers, kind of put that in context a little bit, or your, your listeners in context a little bit. Um, in April of this year, the Mexican government sent 400 soldiers into Reynosa, Mexico, which is just across from McAllen, Texas to go after what we call a plaza boss. This is the individual who takes all the money in for the cartels. It's a, it's a pretty high-ranking position, but by no means is it a position like Chapo Guzman held. And they brought in 400 troops to go after and capture and or kill an individual by the name of Commander El Toro because they believe themselves to be commandos. And they did get him. It, now, I can tell you, they were trying to get him for a year and a half, and they were able to get him. But it took 400 soldiers to get one man. 
in this city. And this, these, they had roving gun battles throughout the city of Reynosa for almost a month before they finally got him. So that's just an example of what it takes today just to kill or go after a plaza boss, never mind a capo like Chapo Guzman. Um, and we all saw the capabilities there where his people were digging him out uh, through tunnels, you know, digging him out of one of the supermax prisons in Mexico. So it just goes to show the level of tradecraft and capabilities that they possess and that they utilize against the Mexican military every day. You know, when you talk about this idea of digging tunnels, you know, for many of us, we probably can't comprehend exactly what would motivate somebody to to do that, to take that kind of a risk. I mean, how dangerous is it? Yeah, sure. And I mean, think about it. Um, going under the river yeah. into the United States, avoiding law enforcement. Um, you know, usually in tunnels, they're used for moving narcotics and weapons uh, more so than they are people because think of the money that's involved to build those tunnels, you know, to put oxygen in them, to, you know, light them up and put lighting in them, generator power and workmen to complete these things. So a lot goes into it. There's a big expense there. And it goes also to show that the sheer level and capability of the cartels. And I, you know, I'll be very frank with you. I've been very critical of the intelligence community in the past. We continue to underestimate them at all turns. And, and I'll just give you a, a, just a real quick example. We remember the methamphetamine market as it began to evolve in 2004. Historically, throughout our country, our own criminals and our biker gangs ran the methamphetamine market throughout our country. Today, in 2004, I remember very clearly when, and, and I know the listeners will remember too, the, when we started having these meth labs throughout the United States and people were, were going in and buying pseudoephedrine from our local pharmacies in massive amounts and then making methamphetamine. Well, when we began to outlaw that at the state level and only allow people to buy so much at one time, it literally knocked that market out and the cartel saw that gap and they took complete uh, advantage of it. They created the mega labs in Mexico, began buying large amounts of pseudoephedrine from the nation of China, importing pseudoephedrine, creating the mega labs, and completely took over the market, lowering the price. And now they completely control the meth market throughout the United States. So it's just an example of how they make adjustments in the, in the market. And they don't stop. And then we saw the same thing happen uh, later in around 2012 with heroin, when they saw the opioid addiction through doctor shopping going on in the United States. And they, again, they came in and took that market over as well and then started shipping cocaine globally. So in a way, they're always looking for, for new markets, new potential customers, et cetera. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's, I, I will tell you, I get very frustrated when I hear, you know, how the U.S. is, you know, uh, still the problem for everything occurring in Mexico when it comes to the drug market. It's very true. I mean, we, we have to be very honest about that. We have, you know, we have a lot of people here in our great nation that are addicted to these you know, illicit drugs. There's no doubt about it. But it's now a global problem. And, you know, it goes back to the original part of our discussion, talking about these dark networks and what the threats are in the 21st century and how evolving they're becoming, you know, for the one of the first times now we're looking at a dark network that is not a part of an ideology 
um, you know, or religion, but literally driven by money, which in my opinion is even worse, especially when you see the atrocities that they are committing in Mexico. And when you see that it's driven by money, and it's, it's in a way almost driven by, potentially one could say, an unlimited amount of money. I think that's a very fair statement. So if that's the case, how do you battle that? Well, you, you know, you do it the same way we do these other problems that we're dealing with around the world. You know, I mean, we address it, we collaborate, and we work together, and we work at real time. You know, I, I will tell you, I travel this great nation, and I talk to law enforcement at local, state, federal, the Department of Defense, and the intelligence community about the cartels after working them for so many years. And, you know, it is all about collaboration today. If you are not working, events occurring around the world real time, if you are not sharing information, and I don't mean just sharing, I mean truly collaborating at unprecedented levels where you are trying to provide as much information real time with organizations, not only around your city, your state, or your nation, but even outside, then, you know, you're just not where you need to be as a law enforcement agency in, in the 21st century. And it's not just a U.S. problem. You know, other agencies around the world, Europol and Interpol, have to do the same thing. And I can tell you they are. Um, but we've got to get better at, because of what we're facing. Then the other aspect of the discussion that we haven't touched upon here, you know, we focused an awful lot on law enforcement and to some extent on the public. What about the business community in this country and efforts that can come from that community that can help this battle? Oh, it's huge. It is just huge. I I will tell you, I think that's one of the biggest untapped resources. You know, this is not just a law enforcement mission. This is, you know, every citizen has to get involved in this. Think of the number, and I'll just give you an example. You know, when we talk about you know, the collaborative part, think of how many homes, you know, EMS go in every year, or firemen, or, you know, uh, health workers and others. And think of the things that our citizens see every day. I mean, they know who's doing what in those communities. And that's where it goes back to, you know, public relations and working with our communities and really having an understanding of what's happening in our cities and, you know, in our urban environments. And uh, working with our citizens because this is a, a team of teams approach and we can't expect law enforcement to do this alone. You know, you, we've got to be working with the private sector and not only that leveraging the capabilities and leveraging technology that the private sector has. I mean, there's some amazing capabilities out there. And, you know, I believe that being open and honest with the public is the key to this as well. Because you're never going to reach them if we're not doing that. And that's one of the reasons I'm talking now that I've retired and, and trying to come out and talk to the folks about the challenges we face. Because it's hard to imagine how just how fast things are evolving today. And what's the response like from business leaders that you talk to? I, I will tell you, uh, you know, there's a huge response to it. The challenge is how does law enforcement share information um, without burning investigations, as, as the term is called, or, or destroying an investigation. Um, that's one of the challenges that we face. And, you know, I, I have shared and collaborated thousands, literally thousands of investigations, and never destroyed one. And so there are ways of doing it um, where you can do this properly. 
And I will tell you, the agencies that you see that are the most successful are collaborating and sharing information at all levels. They truly are. And they, they developed uh, programs to be able to do that. You know, look at the uh, TLO program or terrorism liaison officer program within fusion centers across the country where they're working with private sector and the public. Huge programs doing great work. So you're exactly right. Um, I, I'm a big believer that, you know, this is a, a holistic approach. and We've got to bring everyone to the table. Talking with Jason Jones on our program on the fan this Sunday morning. We'll talk more with you as we continue and move into the home stretch of our discussion. If you want to join us in our discussion, you can. 877-337-6666 is our number here at the fan. Rick Wolf is along with the Sports Edge program after our top of the hour update at uh, 8 o'clock. And Ed Randall will be by talking baseball after our 9 o'clock update on the fan. Uh, I want to get into some er other areas that we have not covered yet in our discussion uh, with uh, Jason. Uh, Jason's website I mentioned earlier at Jason Jones, and his first name is spelled J-A-E-S-O-N, Jason Jones, all as one word, dot com. He's a counterterrorism expert, very interesting background that he has to share with us. And we've got more to get to as we continue on our program on the fan this Sunday morning. It is Sunday morning on the fan. Good morning, everybody. This is Bob Salter after our 8 o'clock update. Rick Wolf is along with the Sports Edge program, and Ed Randall will be by talking baseball after our 9 o'clock update. It is the July 4th holiday weekend. The 30th anniversary of WFAN, of course, um, this weekend as well being celebrated. And we are having an interesting discussion with guest who's joined us since we started our program this morning, Jason Jones. Um, Jason is a counterterrorism expert. He's uh, shared an awful lot with us. I said we'd try to work in some thoughts from some of the folks listening to us. Let's do that in the home stretch of the program. WFAN's toll-free line, 877-337-6666. It's brought to you by Hot Summer Fun at Mohegan Sun, Connecticut, now through September 3rd, and let's go to the phones. Uh, let's see. I believe we're starting with uh, Ken in Manhattan. Ken, good morning. Welcome to, welcome to the fan. Well, thank you. Thanks for taking my call, Bob. I, I've always wanted to ask this question because the, the word terrorist is used a lot these days, right? A lone gunman is a terrorist. A gay person is a terrorist. A feminist. A people who free lab animals occupy Wall Street. What is the legal definition of a terrorist? Yeah, great, great question, and uh, you can easily look that up. But I will tell you that it is anyone that causes terror in a community, and you know it's also you know, the perception that we perceive. But the legal definition, uh, you know, I don't have that right off the top of my head. I'll just be very frank and honest with you. But you know, anyone that causes terror in our communities, and you know, the people in New York definitely felt that the other day. So even though that is actually workplace violence. You know, it sure hits us all in the heart and makes us think about the challenges that we face. So it's a media thing? <laughs> if, we, if, we did, if we didn't know about him, then he wouldn't cause terrorists. So well, is, a, is a lone gunman a terrorist if we don't know about him? That's a very interesting question. It's a very interesting question, and it's interesting the way in which you phrase that, Ken. You've given us something to think about, definitely. All right. Thank you for your call this morning and your patience on the phone, too. 
Very interesting. You never can tell exactly where listeners are going to take us in discussions here. Uh, let's go <laughs> well, next to... to you uh, know, I understand what he's saying, you know. Oh. I mean, it goes back to kind of what you were asking earlier about, you know, um, this evolving threat that we face and what we categorize these people. I, I mean, I, I see his point where he's going with it. Exactly. Uh, but without question, these, these shooting incidents, you know, are causing this type of fear in our communities and, you know, and in our hearts, making us worry about, you know, what's going on in our nation. And there are people who raise questions and times very valid questions about the way in which the media conducts itself, too. Mike sure. in New Milford is next on The Fan. Mike, good morning. Welcome to The Fan. Good morning. Good morning. Um, just a few uh, questions. Uh, first of all, I'd like to thank you for your service and uh, for helping out with this big problem that we have in the country. Uh, a couple of things. Number one, I, I believe we should really, really start at all levels in school to teach the kids, you know, this is bad. This is not a good thing. Uh, I know they have programs, but I think we have to get even even more stronger on that point. Um, uh, just quickly, growing up at 66 years old, I was scared straight when I saw James Cagney screaming and yelling, going to the usher chair and the angels with dirty faces, okay? So that put it on for me that be a good guy, you know? And um, my, my other thing is, how do you feel about setting up some kind of uh, um, judicial thing where um, it's more like uh, you know we 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 uh, get to these these people that are that are committing the crimes, getting them and getting them um, incarcerated quickly and uh, and severely, and putting a lot of putting more money into building facilities to put these people away. You know, I mean, it's it's crazy. It's 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 nuts. And uh, my third point is no no exceptions. You know, no zero tolerance. You know, you're involved whether you're the guy selling the materials to build the tunnels, to teach how to use the drones, to sell the drugs. Make sure who you're selling it to and what you're doing because you're involved in this. And I think we should prosecute at all levels. You know, anybody that's involved in any way, even if they don't know it. Find out. Make sure who you're selling it to. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you for your call and your questions this morning and your comments. Jason? Yeah, I, I would tell you that. Well, first of all, I appreciate the caller's question, and, and, and thank you for that. I, um, I am a big believer that one of the things that we are not doing properly, and it goes back to the caller's original thoughts about, you know, um, things that we can do better, starting with our young people. It's extremely important. We need a real public media campaign to get behind this narco culture that is occurring in throughout Mexico and Latin America. Um, same thing as we do with active shooters and that we're seeing to show how bad this is. And, you know, the commer and there, and there's some real documented proof that this goes a long way. If you go back to the IRA that we, you know, had issues with in the 1980s overseas, uh, one of the biggest things that's overlooked that helped dismantle and disrupt the IRA was, was public commercials on local television hitting the hearts of those who were committing those crimes, taught, showing the victims and what this carnage caused, and that that reached a lot of people. Um, if you look at what has happened with the FARC, the thing after decades of battling in Colombia, it is not what the, the breakup of the FARC, which is occurring right now. I don't know if your viewers are aware, but they're turning in their weapons at unprecedented levels. 
all is coming from a public media campaign saying, come home, you know, affecting their hearts. Look in the Middle East where there are commercials now uh, targeting those suicide bombers, you know, trying to show how that's bad. So we're seeing some huge successes. It's not all about bringing guns and tactics, tactics and law enforcement, you know, um, and that goes back to, to what we talked a little bit about earlier, the community approach. But I'm a big believer that we have we need a much bigger public media outcry uh, to some of the challenges that we face because we've seen huge results from that in the past. Mike, I hope that addressed your uh, questions this morning. We go next to Dave in Irvington, New Jersey. Dave, good morning. Welcome to The Fan. Good morning, Bob. Great to speak to you, and happy fourth to both you and Jason when it comes. Thank you. You as well. Thank you. you Jason, Jason, I want to tell you that I congratulate you 1,010% for what you're doing in the area of fighting terrorism. And I, I want you to know that I am a Muslim. I... I I'm a black American who converted to Islam eight years ago, and I, and I want to commend you because, you know, unfortunately, you know, there are, there are not enough voices in our community who are being heard on this issue. You know, this, this barbarism that is taking place in the name of this peaceful religion, which I converted to, has got to stop. And, and something you just said a moment ago makes all the sense in the world. We have got to help law enforcement in the Muslim community. We have got to get a hold of these, you know, mostly young men, you know, who go on the Internet and have the potential to be radicalized. And we've got to show them. We've got to teach them the proper religion and to let them know you cannot commit these acts in our name, you know, because this is not what the Quran says. This is not what the literature of the Prophet Muhammad, the Hadith uh, condone, you know, these are demagogues who are brainwashing these young men mostly, and uh, they're they and uh, teaching them that you know Israel is their enemy, the West is their enemy, the United States is their enemy, and that they have a right, they have an obligation to fight this quote unquote jihad, and they've even bastardized the word jihad because technically the term has nothing to do with killing anybody; it has to do with you know, a struggle of good and evil within oneself, but it's been ba- it's been bastardized. You know, as a holy war against people. Jason, want to respond? Yeah, absolutely. And I, D- I, Dave, thank you for your call this morning too. I'm going to let Jason I, respond to you on air. Okay. I definitely. Thank you for your call, and, and I think he's exactly right. You know, um, it doesn't matter if it's you know in the religious realm or you know in the narco culture. You know, we have people with dark hearts who are committing bad things, and they're doing bad things, and they're, they're writing different uh, religious uh, areas to, to carry out their mission. So, you know, on the Islamic side, I, I absolutely agree with what he's saying, and, I, I, you know, it, it, it really frustrates you, doesn't it? Um, but the goal is to come out and talk about these things and, and get our folks talking about it and to you know, bring awareness to our community so that we can find solutions to it um, as, you know, communities. And I think that's the key. We go next on the phone to Bill in Glen Gardner. Bill, good morning. Welcome to The Fan. Hello. Bill, good morning. Welcome to The Fan. Good morning, gentlemen. I have a two-part question. On the border thing, why can't they just put down barbed wire and landmines? 
You, you, you mine the, the, the ground five miles in. You get past that, good luck. And my second part is all these rappers, they make it seem like the drug culture is the greatest thing in the world, showing the money, the jewelry. It, you know, these guys have got to stop, or it's never going to stop. That's, okay. that's my point, and thank you, gentlemen. Thank you for your call this yeah. morning. Jason? Thank you very much. And, you know, look, uh, I, I hear you on the border issue. It's extremely frustrating. You know, we've been, my gosh, we've been hearing about it for decades. It is, you know, I I am ready for action at this point and, and to really stop all this talking about it. But um, from our government's side of the view is what I'm getting at. But I will tell you that, you know, it goes back to what we talked about earlier about the public media campaign. You know, we, we can remember those of us, you know, from the early 80s, you know, the Just Say No campaign. You know, these things work. And we've got to start reaching our youth at every level um, involving these challenges that we face and, and leveraging the propaganda as well back against uh, some of the things that they're saying. Interesting discussion we are having on our program with uh, Jason Jones this Sunday morning. Stay with folks on the phone at 877-337-6666. We go next to Drew in Howell, New Jersey. Drew, good morning. Welcome to The Fan. Good morning, gentlemen. Thanks for taking my call. How are you today? Excellent. And yourself? Oh, just fine. Thanks. Um, well, you know, I, 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 I sort of preface this with, with a lot of these uh, types of discussions. I'm a 10-year Army veteran, and I spend time outside the country. It doesn't matter where. I just spend time outside the country. And this gentleman that you've got on the radio with you, he not only deals with the point of terrorism and counterterrorism, but he deals with two distinct avenues of information dispersal in this country. You've got the mainstream media or the Trump-called fake news. You've got the conservative, very right on the, on the far right wing. And there is no common ground. But my point is this. The American people, honestly, if they think what they see on any news source is what happens, is what takes place on that day, what counterterrorism experts and terrorism experts see, if the American people were allowed to see every piece of information that comes across their desk concerning a threat, whether real or, or not real, whether, you know, whether sincere or just a hoax by some kook or some nut who wants to make a statement, the American people would definitely snap, too, and they would take a little bit different appreciation, and they would appreciate the people that are protecting the borders. And I think, honestly, there's not enough appreciation given to those, because if you think what you see on the news is the actual number, it may to the country. Uh, Drew, you're breaking up there. All right, I'm going to let uh, let Jason respond on air. Unfortunately, we lost you. Uh, there, you're sick. Yeah, I lost. I lost the last part of what he said. I didn't hear what that was, but I will. I will. Uh, or I want to first of all thank him for his service to our great nation and and for his comments this morning. But I I absolutely agree with you. You know um, that some of the things that I've talked about this morning, and, and I got to ask you about, well, like for the cartels, for example, is this kind of information getting up to you in the Northeast? Are you guys hearing this? Because this isn't new. Relative, I mean, this has been going on for a long time. Relatively speaking, no, to be very honest with you, unless you really are digging for it. But again, it gets into the whole issue of exactly where it is that one goes for information and sources of news. But for the most part, the answer is no. Okay. All right. So let me just like give you an example of, of some of the challenges that we face. On June 9th of 2017, 
in Deming, New Mexico, a U.S. Border Patrol agent was kidnapped from his home by a La Lina cartel member. La Lina is a cartel that operate in Juarez. He was kidnapped in Deming, New Mexico, and all of your listeners can look this up. Just to give you an example of how the violence in Mexico is spreading over our border and into the U.S., he was kidnapped, he was tortured, and his fingers were cut off. And then he was dumped on the side of the road. Now, ladies and gentlemen, he is a federal agent of our great nation. And when you see fingers cut off, usually that's an indicator of some type of corruption or something involved. And I I have to throw that out there, but I don't know that to be the fact in this case. But most likely, there's going to be something there. But it doesn't matter, because if if dark networks are able to cross into our country, kidnap and torture one of our federal agents, imagine what they'll do to you and me. And this is why it's so important that the media pick up on these challenges and that we have a really honest discussion with the American people about the challenges that we're facing. And so I really appreciate you this morning allowing me to be here to, to talk with everyone. Jason Jones, our guest on our program on The Fan this Sunday morning. Jason's first name is spelled J-A-E-S-O-N, jasonjones.com, his uh, website. A lot of information that he has shared with us in our discussion. As I mentioned, he's a retired captain from the Texas Department of Public Safety's Intelligence and Counterterrorism Division. He managed the daily operations for the Texas Rangers Border Security Operations Center, supervised human intelligence operations in several nations, and managed intelligence lead operations for the longest 24-7 border operation in Texas history, Operation Secure Texas. You've shared so much with us in the course of our discussion this morning. We very much appreciate your time and uh, your comments and also your uh, service. Thank you very much for being so kind with your time, and certainly good luck continued with your efforts, Jason. Thank you very much, and to all your listeners, I just want to, you know, I know, uh, especially in, in New York, you're suffering from this horrible event that happened up there in that city, but uh, I want to wish everyone up there a very happy Fourth of July, and remember, this is the greatest nation on the planet. We put people on the moon. We can do, we can fix this problem. Um, we just got to come together to do it. So thank you very much and happy fourth. Thank you very much. And interestingly enough, a little later this month, the 20th, as a matter of fact, is that anniversary of man landing on the moon. I know Rick Wolf remembers that. He'll be by after our eight o'clock update. And speaking of going to another planet, after our nine o'clock update, Ed Randall will be by. He'll be. <laughs> Talking baseball. You like that one, huh, Rick? Here on The Fan. Radio.com. Radio.com. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.